the ironic thing is, is that where I wanted to go and end my life, actually where my life started. That's OCR visionary Joshua Fry, his incredible fitness story coming up next. Welcome to Happily Ever Active, where we crack the consistency code with fitness tips on motivation, mindset, and much, much more. Now, here's your host, author of Feel Like It, and the guy with the silent O, Kelly Dell. A warm welcome to you. I hope you've joined me after a week of motivating movement. My week has been filled to the brim with inspiration, thanks in no small part to my interview with my guest today, Joshua Fry. Joshua owns OCR Academy, an obstacle-based training center in Ottawa, the first of its kind in the city. Sensing the growing appetite for obstacle course racing, Joshua built OCR Academy from scratch, then constructed the first permanent outdoor obstacle circuit in the city's outskirts. The ranch, as it's known, is currently home to the Lumberjack OCR event series. But behind these accomplishments is one of the most touching and motivating fitness journeys I've ever heard. In it, Joshua shares how fitness became a guiding light out of his darkest time. So without further ado, let's have a listen. All right, well, here I am on site at OCR Academy with Joshua Fry, the owner of OCR Academy. And I wanted to first welcome Joshua here on the show today. He has an incredible story that I think is not only inspiring, but for uh, many of you out there who have struggled or are struggling right now with uh, your motivation to get active, Josh's story has a lot of inspiration in it. And I wanted him to come on to the show to talk a little bit about his discipline, which is OCR, but also give a little bit of his background that I think has a lot of value in terms of how a fitness journey can begin, the the origins of of a fitness journey, and in particular, how Josh has taken the early stages and essentially built a facility that now has a really strong community around it. Welcome to the show, first off. Thanks for having me. And I want to ask you, what is OCR? For someone who's never heard of it, what is it about? And maybe what's the attraction? Why is it getting so popular so quickly? Yeah, uh, OCR Academy, uh, well, OCR stands for Obstacle Course Racing. And uh, where the Academy kind of spawned from is uh, during my time working at Spartan Race, traveling through Eastern Canada, building the obstacle course race for the company, and essentially just observing and seeing how people are doing on the course, having my conversations with them afterwards, asking how they felt, how they enjoyed it. And generally, clear across the board, they all said, we love it. We love the race, but I really wish there were somewhere I can go and train for it. And then that kind of resonated with me. And then over time, OCR Academy was born. That took about five years. So the uh, inception or the idea for OCR Academy started five years ago. And then here we are today in the physical space. What's it like to walk into what would essentially be the manifestation of that dream five years ago every day? You're walking into this facility. And I'll have pictures, by the way, on Instagram of the facility. It's not your normal looking gym. I will tell you that. No, it's not. Uh, the goal is that we always wanted to put the fun back in functional fitness. And uh, coming here to work every day and what I get to do every day and what I get to see every day is it's a blessing. And uh, I don't want to throw around words that, you know, have been kind of overdone. Uh, it's, it's an adventure and I'm kind of going along with it as, as every day goes by and, and every day it's an adventure. Something new is coming, something that I haven't experienced before because the great thing is nobody's doing what we're doing right now. Sometimes I make really good decisions, other days not so much and it's, uh, I'm constantly learning and overcoming 
obstacles. Uh, and uh, it's, it's great. Yes, and there's a, clearly a, a, a great metaphor for the actual physical obstacles that we see here in the gym. And I'm looking here, there's a big rig of uh, rings, kind of like monkey bars, and there's obstacles to climb. There's lots of different things here, and it's not just the physical obstacles that are in our way. And I know a lot of, on the show, I talk about how uh, the mental obstacles can be just as substantial. And when I met you, I was like, man, this is a guy who is clearly a motivated person. And and he's sort of living the fitness dream. He's uh, a fit guy. He owns a facility. But it wasn't always that way, was it? It wasn't, no. So how has your journey even brought you here? It all kind of started when I was uh, uh, I was born, no different than any other human being. Uh, but unfortunately, I, I didn't have a consistent father figure in my life. Uh, I was raised by a single mother. Uh, she was on the Children's Aid Society radar because my half-sister was already uh, into the Children's Aid Society program. And uh, for people who may not know, is uh, Children's Aid Society, the CAS, is uh, kind of like a foster care group home type thing. And as I was going through my adolescence, I started to rebel and act like, most teenage boys do and kind of push back and fight back. And my mom just didn't have the resources to be able to handle that on her own. So she looked for some help. Fortunately, it started with um, uh, reaching out to a local newscaster, Max Keeping. Max Keeping uh, in Ottawa is Ottawa's favorite son. I mean, he's got the Order of Canada. He's got uh, the Ontario Award. Uh, he's had a day named after him. He's got uh, streets named after him. A wing at the Chio Hospital has been named after him. The guy's just raised billions and billions of dollars for charity, and he really put the community first. And he was looking for something to kind of add value to his life and kind of more of a purpose aside from uh, his job. So he took uh, uh, some boys underneath his wing, me and my three other brothers, and uh, he became sort of like a father figure. Some would say uh, like a, a big brother, some would say an uncle, but he really kind of did a lot of the things that a father would do. And we actually nicknamed and called ourselves the family of choice. So we chose each other and we wanted to, to, to be there. But of course, like all, all, uh, dysfunctional families, there, there's always, uh, question marks and, and things like that. But unfortunately, it was still a very part-time family and my mom didn't have the resources to commit to me full-time. So I ended up into the Children's Aid Society where I became a crown ward. And, uh, there was a couple of foster parents. Um, uh, Barbara Rorick, she was the first foster mom that I, I, I had. She was an emergency foster mom. So I only got to stay with her for a couple of months. But she really made a big difference in my life. And then uh, I went to uh, Crown Wardship in Belleville. The four years that I spent there, it was very difficult for me. Uh, That's where I developed a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. Uh, I suffered from migraines. Nobody really knew what that was at the time where kids didn't get migraines at the time. Any help that I needed, I wasn't getting it. The difference between uh, uh, a foster home, a therapeutic foster home, which is what I was in, and a group home is that uh, the therapeutic foster home meant that there was supposed to be staff there that replicated family. And we had had the consistent staff there and they would kind of be like our parents. Unfortunately, during that time, the parents that I did have treated me like I was $20 a day. And that's what they told me. And so, you know, any kind of compassion or sympathy that I would try to get from them, it was immediately returned back to like, you're my job. You're just $20 a day to me. That is it. And that really stuck with me. And unfortunately, the compassion and um, uh, kind of loving nature that a, a young child needs to grow, I wasn't getting that on a consistent basis. So that played a huge factor in my life. And it led to me making a lot of piss poor decisions. Fortunately, again, I had Max in my life. I had my mom in my life, but it wasn't on a consistent basis. 
So I made a lot of piss poor decisions and I dropped out of high school. Uh, and then my teenage years was filled with me just, uh, being a kid with no real sense of consequences. And, uh, that really kind of bit me in the butt. And then it eventually landed me behind bars. And in my early twenties, I was in the Innis detention center for theft and possession of property obtained by theft. And, um, you know, I was uh, cashing checks in my bank account that I shouldn't have been checking. I maxed out credit cards. I, I was, I was not a very good human being. After that, it started to develop, um, uh, drugs, addiction to that, uh, cocaine, marijuana, um, alcohol was the big thing. Uh, and every day I was drinking and uh, kind of messing my life up. And it really kind of hit rock bottom in 2008. I got into college as a mature student. I left for a job in the banking industry and I got a really good job. I was making like $33,000 a year outside of college. And it was a good, good gig. And then I was like, I, I, I was going to marry my college sweetheart. We got a dog. Uh, everything was going well. And, but unfortunately, life has a funny way of turning things around. And on November 11th, 2008, on Remembrance Day, my best friend, my brother, uh, who we, I met uh, in foster care and we ma- maintained a consistent relationship and we were very much like brothers, uh, died in a tragic car accident. And when he died, uh, I remember specifically when I got the phone call, it was an accident on Terry Fox right in front of um, uh, A&W and uh, he got T-boned and died on impact. And that night, uh, I got to see him one last time. I went to his soccer benefit. Uh, he got an award for scoring the most goals. He was very happy. Uh, he was the kind of guy that never really shared his emotions. But uh, at the end of that night, I was very depressed at that point. I was still kind of struggling with a lot of the demons that I had. And I really didn't want to go out and be social. But it was his night and I wanted to be there for him. And then when he left, he came over and gave me big old wet one on the side of the cheek, which is a rare thing from him. And so that really stuck with me. And then he left. And then unfortunately, when he left, the driver made an improper left-hand turn and he he got T-boned. And that was the starting point. So I lost my best friend. And then uh, the puppy that I uh, adopted when I was with my fiance uh, died of distemper because we were told he had all the shots, but he didn't have them. And then I got laid off from my job. Then we had a miscarriage with my fiance. And then, uh, then we separated. And on the anniversary of my brother's death, one year later, I said, you know, I'm kind of going through a rough time. Can you help me out a little bit? And she's like, why well, can't? Because I'm, uh, I was like, I want to go see Danny's grave. Can you join me? Uh, even though we were separated, she says, no, I got to go to the hospital because I'm pregnant with my manager's firstborn son. And that was kind of just like, wow, uh, that, that really stuck. And then the tipping point to all of that, to add to it was that uh, my relationship with Max was great, my father, but I had a phone call with him and he said I had a meeting with a group of people who are going to carry on my life's work when I'm gone. So wait a second. So now I've got no kid, got no job, got no puppy, and my dad doesn't want me to be a part of his future when he's gone. I have no purpose. I have no reason to be here. Why am I here? So I got a bottle of Oxycoset. Uh, one of the big tall ones. My mom had a stack of them everywhere. And then I grabbed a bottle of Jack Daniels. And then I was going to go to, I was living downtown in my uh, shitty one bedroom apartment. And I wanted to douse the bottle of pills, douse the, down the bottle of Jack Daniels and head to the canal docks and just let drugs and alcohol and water do its thing. Fortunately, during the separation with the fiance, I was able to adopt her sister's dog, Buster. Uh, so the, the first puppy that we had, uh, died, but then we still had Buster. And Buster 
while I was sitting in my room looking at the bottle of pills and the bottle of Jack Daniels, I'm kind of sitting there with my back to the wall and my knees up and my hands right there. And the dog buster came walking into my room and he walked in between my hands and just kind of separated the two bottles. And he kind of just looked at me. And then that's when it kind of dawned on, on me because I was just I was crying. I was really upset. Um, he could tell that I was upset and he just wanted to take me out for a walk. And then I started realizing, well, if I go and I do this, and that means there's probably going to be about four or five days where people, my friends uh, who want to go out drinking with me are going to realize that I'm not around. So who's going to blockbuster? Who's going to take him for walks? Who's going to feed him? Who's going to give him treats? Who's going to scratch his belly? Who's going to do all the things that he wants to do that make his little tail wag? And then I started to realize, how selfish am I? I this this dog needs me and and I need him. So, all right, let's go for a walk. I put the bottles away. I walked him and then we started to take longer walks. And I had a friend who had a dog and then we started going for longer walks. And I was about 220 pounds and like 17, no, 22% body fat. I was a big boy. Um, I really wasn't in any sports at all. I wasn't athletic. I didn't do any team sports, uh, anything like that. So I, I thought, well, okay, this walking thing, this exercise is kind of, it's, it's, it's fun. Let me see what I can do next. I, I need to change. I don't want to feel like the way that I felt. And I really love being outside and being active. But I never had the motivation to want to uh, take it to the next mm-hmm. level. So then I uh, thought, okay, well, I don't play soccer. And I thought maybe I could start, but I, I don't have a car and, I, and I, I don't have any equipment and I've never played soccer. So uh, what about hockey? Well, I don't have equipment and I, I enjoy watching it, but I don't enjoy playing it. So I thought, well, the auto race weekend's coming up. A lot of people are talking about that. So what if I uh, train to do that? And I'm like, okay, well, let's do a 10-kilometer race i don't want to do a marathon the 5k kind of seems like that'd be too easy so let's do a 10k and then without even realizing it and knowing this but i had to set a goal so i'm like okay because it asks like when do you want like what heat do you want to be in do you want to be with this pace bunny that pace bunny yeah, that yeah, pace yeah. Bunny? I'm like, oh i don't know but what should i what should i do like, 32 minutes to run a 10k that seems uh, i got half an hour i can do that <laughs> yeah. and then i just realized no you can, that's really unrealistic. And what I learned later on is that you always want to set a smart goal. So smart, S-M-A-R-T, smart, measurable, realistic, attainable, and timed. So then I thought, well, is 32-minute 10K adhering to those prerequisites? No. Well, it kind of, it's specific, it's measurable. Is it realistic? No. Is it obtainable? No. But it's timed because I know when I have to do it. So I wanted to try and find a goal that adhered to all those standards. Uh, so then I thought, okay, well, 42 minutes. Let's go 42 minutes. And so I never, I started running around the canal. And the, the ironic thing is, is that where I wanted to go and end my life on the canal, actually where my life started. It was like I was reborn. So those stairs, running up the, the stairs, were almost like having that rocky moment at the end. And I'm kind of like, yes, I made it. Now I, then I got to have my Forrest Gump moment. Like, well, I got this far. Let's just keep on going. And then I kept running and then I went to the local gym. I didn't hire a trainer. I just started lifting weights and kind of doing uh, this and kind of shaping my body in a different way. And then my transformation was, you know, the before and after was, was quite something. And then people started asking, why? Like, how did you do it? Then I got to race weekend, ran the race, crossed the finish line at 41 minutes and 22 seconds. So not only did I meet my goal, but I beat it. I got hooked. And now all the endorphin rushes in my body, I was looking good. Uh, I, I was almost like kind of like, you know, wanted to send it to my ex and be like, <laughs> how's, how's your boyfriend now? And, you know, so 
Um, I was still a bit bitter and I was still kind of overcoming my demons, and my obstacles, but it, luckily I had fitness as I replaced one addiction with the drugs and the alcohol with another. And then, so I carried on with that. And then I fell in love with, uh, obstacle course racing. I did first race and then I fell in love with it. I went to New York and Staten Island, uh, did a race there, then went to Texas for the championships. I finished, I think, in the top 20 percentile, if I remember correctly. And I remember when I was running the race, one of the Americans like, man, you Canadians are fast. Like, okay, cool. So coming back from that race, I got hooked with the obstacle course race scene. I started to do more and more and more. And then with Spartan Race, I asked, like, this is my transformation. And I sent them the picture and they're like, we love it. We want to hear your story. Told them about it. And then I started volunteering for the company, uh, you know, picking up garbage, helping dismantle obstacles, doing the water station, whatever jobs they needed me to do, I did it for free. And that was the following year. The next year, so after three years of doing Spartan races and uh, uh, committing to fitness, they offered me a job. Did the job, uh, went through for the interview story, and then I was like, I need to do something epic. I want to do something crazy. So what can I do? And then I got introduced to Ray Zahap, and he talked to me about his run from Montreal to Ottawa. It's about 200 miles, if I remember correctly. And he did from City Hall to City Hall. And, and he, a lot of his runners do that race from time to time for a fun run. Like, okay, yeah, let's do that. A fun run. Yeah. Fun run. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, we stopped for pizza. We had coffee. I mean, this is a guy who's run across the Sahara Desert in a record time, like a marathon a day for 111 days. So I, I it, love pizza that much. So that's attractive to me. Right. And so that's, that's with me too. And I mean, up at that, up to this point, I did my transformation solely based on introducing physical fitness in my life. I was still eating lasagna every night. I was still eating kind of crap food, but then I, uh, I, my body changed and my body morphed, but I still wasn't performing optimally to my full capacity. Nutrition, that's something that I learned down the road. And I can thank my wife because she's a nutritionist and she's kind of kept me on the on the path. So, but yeah, then I did the run. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to run from City Hall to City Hall. I'm going to go do my interview in Spartan Race. Nailed it, crushed it, got the job. And I'm like, all right, now I'm going to go run from City Hall to City Hall. I made it uh, 100 miles, 113 kilometers. I made it to around Hawkesbury. And my body was just dismantled. I mean, I was eating Timbits and pizza. And I'm like, this is what Ray would have done. And this is what he was doing, right? It was fun. You mean Timbits don't actually... Oh, okay. 99 calories. I'm like, I need calories. I mean, let me have that. And then I realized, no, that's not the right way to do it. And my body paid for it. And I had to stop. But I was like, okay, cool. I I did that. Now let's... Let's see what else I can do and and try and take my body to to all new heights. And then then I got the job for Spartan Race. And then here I am, you know, uh, and the the funny thing I didn't realize this is this was in 2009 I made my transformation. It's 2019. So this is a decade, 10 years. I haven't gone back. I haven't relapsed uh, as far as uh, binge eating or putting the weight back on uh, just by introducing exercise and being active and standing most of the time and walking, I've been able to maintain my, my healthy weight at a metabolic standard. I walk around at 170, never gone up to 185 again. I've never gone down lower than 160. 10 years since I've made that transformation yeah. where I was at the uh, uh, bottom of my uh, of my barrel, literally, to now running OCR Academy, which is, which is kind of surreal. Yeah, that buster moment, sort of uh, a big spark and as a dog guy, I have two dogs, and so it's like that's touching beyond belief to hear that. And even running past on the canal, running past the place where you were, you know, visualizing something going down, that's that's uh, powerful. I, w- I want to revisit one little thing in in that story. To me, I think is uh, a- another powerful thing that might have been subtle amongst all of these things that happened, and that was the moment 
that you got hooked on OCR? Like, first off, how did you even discover it? And what was it about that experience that you had, that encounter that you said, yeah, I want to, I want to do this again. I want to do this more. I want to get involved in this. What was that moment for you? Well, so the Spartan Race tagline is, you'll know at the finish line. And that was brilliant. Cause you, when you, when you, if you've never done an OCR Spartan Race and you go on YouTube Spartan Race, you're going to see these. And, and they did really well with their motivation, like with the video. The first video that I ever saw, I remember, uh, Hobie Cow was kind of the star of the Spartan race at the time. And it was one of those where they took the clips, like from, uh, Rocky motivational speech and then, uh, Coach Carter, where, you know, you're powerful beyond belief. And they're just thinking about that really kind of gives me goosebumps. That video is, uh, with all those montages, like I almost want to go listen to it again. It's, um, it gets you real fired up, but then you see all these jack dudes and these jack ladies and um you're, they're doing all these crazy things that are you'd see in a military course and you think they're the army dudes and they're 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 so strong and you're like okay you know i run 10k i want to do a 5k obstacle course when i got there it was the nature effect you know what's funny is that i'll try and get my kid to walk to the corner store or go for a five minute bike ride and it's like pulling teeth but i bring him to a ski hill during the summer and run up and down the ski hill, he'll do that. It's something about the trees and the, the nature. And there's a theory behind it. And I'm, hopefully, uh, I, I don't know if you know. About- well, we talked about this actually last week's uh, episode. Was it last week's episode? Yeah, the biophilia hypothesis where just being outside, never mind being active, just being outside prompts well-being. Yeah. Just being out there, never mind doing something that you love and challenging yourself. We are still animals, mm-hmm. you know, and we spend a lot of time inside and in cars and whatever. Getting us outside has for most people, still has that effect. And so maybe that's something that was part of that first experience too, it sounds like. combine that with the adrenaline of getting to the start line and you combine that feeling where it's like, okay, all my training, all my preparations, I've seen these videos, now it's my time to be a hero. I'm going to, like, what would the uh, action hero of my movie do right now? This is what I'm going to (laughs) do and I'm going to go and be awesome. And when you combine that and then you cross the finish line, you're like, wow, I don't even feel like I did a race. And, uh, yeah, it's when you combine all of that and then being around other like-minded individuals. And the big thing was that we did it as a group. And so mm-hmm. we went to the first race as a group and to be able to have that camaraderie, you know, 2008, I felt so alone that I had no value, no purpose. And now all of a sudden I'm doing this race with this group of people and the, those same groups of people join me to New York mm-hmm. and those same people join me to Texas. So now we became uh, something that brought us together and that we did that. But now what I've noticed when I worked for the company is that I see people who are strangers, who are who met each other on the course and helped each other go through it. Um, you're experiencing something together and that's that bonding moment and you build upon that. And, that was, and that's why I really love the OCR scene is because it brings people together. That it's getting them outside and doing something fun and, and awesome and, and getting them to, to be kids again. So like I run... No, no obstacles in in the way. But last uh, summer, I had a chance to uh, do my first uh, OCR event, and um, I always thought, how great is this? That you know, normally I'd go for a run. I like running on the trails, and I've I've mentioned this quite a few times on the show. But all of a sudden, you throw in a few obstacles, and this uh, this run that might actually at times get a little boring is anything but boring mm-hmm. because just around the corner is a challenge, and it's not necessarily just like. You know, jumping over uh, a log or whatever. Like these are creative things. And so there's problems involved and 
going back to what you said about the Spartan motto, mm-hmm. you'll know it when you're at the finish. You'll know at the finish line. That's really great because I could, when I was done, it was like, I had that feeling too. It's like, oh, I want to do that again. This mm-hmm. is, this is now going on the map for me mm-hmm. because I like to run. I like to run outside. I like to be outside. And now you, you're putting these problems to solve. And, and it's sometimes it challenges you and your upper body. Sometimes it's your legs. Sometimes you have to be strategic about it. Mm-hmm. These are all uh, experiences that you don't really find elsewhere. And so now I'm looking at your facility here. And, and so now you're meeting this need of like, well, I'd like to do this more training and just for fun too. Like, mm-hmm. so what was that process like? Now you said about five years ago, you kind of had this vision. Walk us through a little bit about how you took your journey and said, I'm going to now take this to another level and try and create a place for these experiences to be experienced by, mm-hmm. you know, this community. Yeah. Um, so with, you know, I like to think that I'm I'm smart and uh, everything kind of happened based on planning, but a lot of it was sheer luck and accidental. Like when I was working for Spartan Race, working for Spartan Race, the, the money was wasn't there. there it was you didn't get paid the best for what you were doing and the hours were long i i compared it uh because the guy the uh eastern canada and one of the co-founders richard lee was um training to become a, a royal british marine and so he was a military guy uh he he tried he uh, uh did the tryout to become a marine but i think he broke his leg or broke his arm and he had to uh, withdraw but he's he's as tough as they come and you know the backstory for richard and to put it into perspective was that when they created spartan race richard and his wife salika uh, who they met at a ski village in tromblon and they met uh and she got sick and he t- took care of her and then they said well when she got better he's like okay we're watching tv the first thing that comes on tv we're going to do something related to that. Even if it's an astronaut and it's the moon, we'll find a way to like find, do something that then luckily it was about going on hikes or something. So they were going to do the Adirondack trail. And so a lot of the obstacles that were designed, uh, were inspired by not only his time in the military, but also on their Adirondack trail, like the slip ramp. Okay. Well, you got to get up this rock face with a, a vine attached to it. And you got to try and get up that while also doing the hike. And they got to uh, Killington, Vermont. And they were telling their story about how they met this woman. And she's like, you need to meet my husband. Her husband is Joe DeSena. And then so they met him. And then he's like, well, I'm putting on this race. It's a 24-hour race. The death race. So he's like, all right. Sounds lovely. Yeah. Sign me up. 24 hours. So they, but they, we didn't realize that they needed supplies. They needed like a shovel. They needed a bike. They needed a roll of pennies and things like that because, you know, they had to carry this bike around and then they had to dismantle it and throw it in a lake and then collect all the pieces and then build it and then carry on. A dollar of pennies in the, in the lake, you have to go and collect 60 cents. So you have to dive down, collect it. Then you had to carry this egg with you the whole time and then create a fire and then build and boil the egg. And it's all these tasks all while, and you didn't know at the time. So like, this is what we're going to do at hour one. No, it's, you had no idea. And then sure enough, Richard actually, while hiking, stopped at this death race. and was like, I think I'll do it. Did it. Won it. And then they, they carried on this conversation afterwards. Like, okay, we need to take what you're doing with the death race and make it accessible to everybody. Spartan Race was born. So working for him was as close to being in the military without getting shot at. <laughs> You know, we would travel in a convoy to uh, the ski hill. We'd set up camp. Most of the time, we're staying in the um, uh, cafeteria of the, the ski village. Uh, sometimes we would actually be camping out outside. And we would wake up, 
go build the course. We'd be outside all day, stop for lunch, we'd take the gear with you. We're running up and down the hill. So it's always funny when somebody would, uh, you know, have struggling with a, uh, an obstacle and I tell them, like, this is how you do it. And they give me sauce. I'm like, I built this. You just have to jump over this wall. I had to carry this wall up to the top of this hill. Uh, but it was, uh, I didn't take it personally because, you know, you never want to judge somebody based on their worst mistakes. <laughs> so, um, it was, it, it was a great experience working for them and then, uh, seeing people in their sheer enjoyment. You know, like when you do a, a, yeah, a PR, you get really jacked and you're excited and you do something you've never done before. You get really excited. I'm like, okay, well, how can I replicate a PR squat, getting over an eight foot wall, jumping off a 12 foot wall into a foam pit and then giving these people that sense of accomplishment without having to squat 500 pounds? Mm. That's when the idea started to, to come and uh, to learning the adversity and being optimistic and humbled uh, throughout the whole experience with Spartan Race kind of led to the building of this. It's like I say, it's not a typical gym, and this is something that uh, you won't see, you know, in a strip mall and any, no. you know, those types of places. Um, and so I can come, it can be pretty intimidating. And I, and I think when you're talking about the course experience you've had and where people encounter an obstacle and they're challenged and maybe they're feeling a little intimidated because some of these things are imposing. You know, what would you say to those people who are who are um, curious about it? Because at mm. one point you were curious too. And that's mm. what I think a lot of people may fail to realize when you see people who you know, who are really active, really fit, maybe elite performers, they had a place mm. where this all started too. Maybe there's people who are listening who are like, that's them. So yeah, I mean, it all started with me by taking my dog for a walk. You know, I was, uh, uh, I, I wasn't fit at all. 220 pounds from my frame and that over 20% body fat, like that's, that's not a healthy person. So I set these, these goals, but if I were to think, oh, in 10 years, I'm going to be in the best shape of my life and I'm going to be running a gym. No, I didn't think that at all. Mm -hmm. I was just going for a walk. If you can systematically break down how your body feels after certain things and find a way to find that moment or that feeling and try and make it last a lot longer, that's the ticket. So if you go out for a walk, you're like, wow, that felt great. I feel good. Okay. Let's try and let's build upon that. Let's work on that. Uh, it's all a lot of the easy things that people need to do. So for a lot of people, I would suggest to them is that let's start small. Just make those small changes and then start adding things like, coming to a fun gym and so our gym yeah you see the obstacles and you're like oh my god i can't do a 14 foot warp wall i can't go across 41 feet of monkey bars but if you walk into a dojo are you going to be like can i have my black belt please <laughs> no you got to work towards it so we've got uh dumbbells kettlebells uh squat racks and a lot of our classes incorporate not only the obstacles but obstacles that we feel a lot of people can do with a, a simple cues but then also combine a lot of the other fitness things that were tried and tested. And that's what, kind of the concept that I wanted to create when I, mm. when I thought about this gym and where it kind of aspired from. Cause I was in a position I could either buy a, a like a, one of the local gyms here uh, that are franchisable. Uh, I could open up a CrossFit gym or yoga studio, 24 hour fitness. But then I read this book called The Purple Cow and the purple cow, the premises of it is, is that if you wanted to buy milk and eggs from a farmer that you've never met before, and you're driving down this farm field and there's like five farms along the way and you see a black and white cow, you see a brown and white cow. Like I've seen those things before, nothing really sparking my interest. And then you keep going down to the other line and you see a purple cow. You know, you've never seen that purple cow before. Now you're interested. 
You go there, they've got a merry-go-round, they've got a petting zoo, they've got all these things for the family to go and it's now an event and now you, you become part of it. Purple milk, presumably too? Yeah, absolutely. You know, why not? And then so now the eggs and the milk are no different than the other farmers down the road, but you stopped at that farm because you wanted to see that purple cow. So when we built this gym, I could have built a lot of other gyms, but Unfortunately, I was, and I made the call to the franchise and I wanted a franchise. They didn't return my phone calls. And that was a blessing because now instead of working for somebody else, I have an opportunity. It was scary, but I felt really confident because I did my market research. You know, like I said, I thought I was smart and I, I knew that there was a demand for it, but you really don't know until you actually do it. So, mm -hmm. like, okay, what would I tell my son to do? Let's do it. You, you, you calculated, you, you, you studied the market, you know the numbers, you did the business plan, you've studied everything and you feel that based on your research and your knowledge that this is a good, valuable choice. And I did it. Again, I barely passed my my business course in college. <laughs> uh, I didn't graduate through high school. I'm not the smartest cookie in the jar, but passionate. And passion really beats a lot of other things. If you're not passionate about what you do, What's the point, right? And that's the thing that we always want to tell our kids. From knowing some of the members here and knowing some of them quite well, there's certainly, and I think it comes out in your story too, how you can't always do this alone. And you've built this um, experience around this experience of OCR, but there's a community. And, mm -hmm. you know, young, old, uh, guy, gal, there's a, a good mix here. And not all of them are elite pushing for podiums at Spartan races and and whatnot. So tell me a little bit about that part of how the social community element really matters to, mm -hmm. to you and, and how it plays itself out here. First off, we're, we're going on our fourth year. I didn't brand this as a, as a community place. My members did. They, they feel like this is a community. They come here. They, they look around. They know the people that's in their class. They're um, helping each other out. Uh, a lot of people, for instance, on our 1045 class, there's a group of ladies who decided we're going to go into a Spartan race and they're going to start training for that. And so if you are part of that group and if you find out if you're part of that group, figure out what your strengths are. And if you have the, if you're the comic relief, then you be the comic relief. If you're the, the sprinter and you're going to be the podium finisher, then that's your position and that's your role and that's what you're going to strive for. Cool. But then you're also going to be around other people that are going to serve value to that group. And so we built that community and we have that group for those people specifically for that. You know, the, the best piece of advice that I can, uh, give to somebody as well is if you can find that training partner, you know, and we were talking about, uh, Rocky when he beats Apollo and then or they go toe to toe and then he beats him the next round and I think it's Rocky 3 when he has to go against Mr. T and he's uh, Rocky's now not at the best caliber that he can be and he needs that partner and that training partner that you know in that one scene on the beach when they're running and uh, Apollo keeps beating him and keeps beating him because uh, 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 Rocky's going through his own demons right now and he can't quite figure it out and Apollo's getting frustrated but he just keeps beating him and beating him and beating him and then finally Rocky steps up to the plate and beats them. And then you see that scene when they're running into the water and they're jumping for joy and they're so happy. And Apollo's happy for him as well. There was no ego. It's not like, I'm the best. Nobody can beat me. He was happy and genuinely happy that his protege and the person he was training and working with actually got better and is now better than him. And that's what you want because if you can motivate somebody or inspire somebody to be a better version of themselves – then you've accomplished what you're supposed to do as a human being. And so 
having that training partner that sticks with you and, and goes to the gym with you and keeps you motivated and then wants you to become better, but then also at the same time, they're becoming better as a human being because now it's not always about muscles. That is kind of the facility that we wanted to build because we wanted to provide that for people and to have that feeling and to, to uh, set a goal and to accomplish it. And it happens so, it sounds like so organically that it's not something you could have all planned out. And that's sometimes that's how things mm -hmm. turn out the best. And I love how, you know, you're talking about, we, you know, I mentioned the word how people can get intimidated. Well, well, when you're approaching a race or you're trying to do something for the first time, even visiting, let's say OCR Academy, which again, you know, you walk in, you've never done it. You know, if you, if you're bringing someone else or you're bringing a few people with you and you're, 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 you're going to a race, you're going to an event, it's always, a bit easier and even a little bit more fun when you're when you're sharing some of that anxiety with some some other people and i always tell people too that you know it's uh, there's you know the awkwardness of some of these things that the first time doing these things you know that's part of the the joy of it that you can kind of laugh at yourself too that how mm, yeah. how it's not always you don't always come out of the blocks you know like a 100 meter sprinter you know you, you trip and you fall and you learn from it but getting out there to to touch it so you can get a feel for it is the data that we're all looking for. Um, I want to ask one last question here. I know you've, you've built obstacles. You've, you've, you've climbed them. What is the obstacle that always gives you the most fits that you yourself as a racer or whatever that you come up to you and go, okay, all right. You, 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 you might be a little bit intimidated yourself. The rope climb. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It's one of those things where you're, you're relying so much on, on your hands and your body. I mean, there's a reason why I was in high school. I mean, we had to bring it back. Rope climb needs to come back. Uh, it, but I remember when I did the ultra race. So the ultra Spartan race is like a marathon of obstacles. You know, you're doing about 42, 43 kilometers, sometimes 50, and you're doing a course sometimes twice. And so in this particular case, I had to do the rope climb twice. And the second time I got to it, I got halfway. Like, I don't know if I can do this. And it, and it legitimately scared me. Uh, and, um, it tested me to limits. Balance is another thing. It's something as simple as standing on one foot and moving across. Seems fine when you're fresh, but when you're gassed and exhausted because you wanted to get to the obstacle first, something as simple as walking on a, on a two by four, two inch board becomes very challenging. <laughs> uh, and it's the, the little things like that that you, you don't want to take for granted. And, and that was another thing that uh, that's the uh, one thing I wanted to touch on. If anybody comes in here and tells me that they're not strong enough, I want them to do that while standing up because standing up is the epitome of strength. If you can stand up, then that means you are strong enough to do that. And then we can build upon that. Well, when I'm at my next OCR event and I'm dangling, you know, ass over tea kettle on the rope, I will think of you. <laughs> But I want to thank you for your time, Joshua. This is great. And I want to congratulate you for, first off, overcoming the obstacles that you endured. OCR is growing for a reason. And part of that reason is people like Mr. Fry here who are bringing such positive inspiration and support for people who are trying to make a change in their lives. And this mm -hmm. is a great, creative, fun, and potentially competitive way mm -hmm. to do that. So congratulations again. Thank you. A sincere thank you to Joshua and the staff at OCR Academy for hosting me on site this week. It's really a cool place. Joshua's story really moved me, and hopefully it moved you too. It just goes to show that when you find something that fits, something that makes you feel alive and gives you a little more purpose from day to day, and then you include like-minded people along the way, 
who knows where it will take you. With that, thanks for joining me. Why not follow the show on Instagram at Happily Ever Active Show? And of course, until next time, here's to living happily ever active. This episode of Happily Ever Active has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more content on the mental side of fitness. Oh, and don't forget to rate and review the show. See you next time.